0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conversations with the Co-op. This is where we source questions from the Index Co-op community to gain insights from today's leaders in crypto and DeFi. I'm your host, Crypto Texan, and today we have Evgeny Guyboy from Wintermuth with us today. Evgeny, thanks for being here with us today. How's everything going?
1: Yeah, everything is great. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. We're excited. So let's just go ahead and get started by just your background and how did you get into crypto?
1: My journey into crypto is pretty much intertwined with my winter mid journey. But basically, like, my, my background is in traditional finance. So I was at uh, Optiver, one of the largest uh, global market makers in trad 5 for about 10 years, building the ETF market, making desk. And to me, like, basically if you're in ThreatFi five for about 10 years at some point you realize yeah how convoluted and how legacy the tech stack is for well any 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 anything trading related really so and as a market maker you see even more of it like you see i don't know all those like custodians uh, settlements agents uh, clearers, like it's basically all legacy like, tech. It all contributes to this, like, two, three days settlement for stocks. And, uh, like, there are so many examples of inefficiencies on the government level as well. And you get, like, you need to find your way around it, which is really annoying because all you want to, like, is to make markets efficient and make money for, mm-hmm. for your company. But it also, like, it, you cannot help but think, like, is there a different way to do it? And so, at some point, I stumbled upon blockchain, and I think for me the, the the initial the initial thinking was okay. Sounds like a great technology. I don't really care about the crypto aspect of it because, yeah, I know what the hell is Bitcoin saying. So I just focused on the enterprise blockchain initially in my I know internal research. Which sounds really horrible but yeah <laughs> that, that, that's how i that's how i started and i think it was back in 2015 or something so i was really really late already by by, by that moment and but i didn't, didn't really touch anything crypto until i actually left optiva back in 2017 i actually started like to have a lot of spare time to look what I want to do next, and I also st- I also started to invest in the crypto first, like bought some bitcoins and like created created account on Kraken, found out that there are other cryptos as well. Started doing some like trading for myself, a bit of that, a bit of that, and eventually I thought, okay, it actually make like with my with my experience in um, in market making, it just makes sense to. Start a market making firm in crypto instead. So I teamed up for these other 2 acceptable guys, and we uh, created Vintereum with an idea that yeah, we just want to make a market that will be providing liquidity uh, on all the centralized exchanges. Like DeFi was not the same back then in 2017, and at the same time it will be doing it in a, well in a decent way, like no pump and dump schemes, no like nothing about pay, creating like fake volumes for projects basically like doing a like pro- proper saying like that we would not get into jail uh, in traditional finance but also something that was quite in line with our values and basically somewhere along the, along this journey over the last five years I basically I basically learned a lot more about like how the stuff operates and it kind of grew in me and basically from I basically grew inside of me, like from the speculative angle that, okay, those, like all those tokens move a lot. It's so much volatility. It's so nice, it's so, so nice to make money of it. To actually appreciate in the blockchain technology to actually, like on the philosophical level, even appreciating decentralization as a value and as a, like as a way of doing things in, the, in this world, opposed to like current centralized state, basically.
0: And I... I think that's interesting that you touched on, you talked about in 2015, you were getting into the enterprise blockchain solutions. And I remember when I was getting into the space in 2017, that that was still a pretty hot topic, right? The private blockchains or the enterprise blockchains. And I'm just wondering if you had any opinions as to why, I don't know, that space hasn't really panned out like a lot of people thought that it would. And I don't know why it's not just that effective of a solution compared to uh, the public blockchains.
1: Yeah, I would say my guess would be is just uh, inertia inside those big corporations that are pushing it because like it's like it's it's a great, obviously it's a great like alternative to what's already built. But in order to change things, like in order to move to the blockchain, uh, in a lot of those examples, like so many processes would have to be changed inside those corporations for example that i I don't think like there was enough buy-in internally in most of them that would be my guess at least like i was never involved in any 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 of those initiatives because like well like i kind of luckily i was not part of those massive corporations ever but yeah that, that would be my guess is just like Just not enough buy-in, just too much inertia, and I think like a lot of pushback from people who would be displaced by this potentially.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, let's move over to Wintermute, and you kind of touched on this a little bit when you were discussing your background, but can you just tell us what is Wintermute, what is the purpose, and its importance in the ecosystem?
1: Basically, over the last four and a half years we made the journey from relatively small market participants so like we had maybe three million dollars worth of assets in the beginning of 2020 for example and now basically grew pretty much like 1000 fold (laughs) to this year and we grew from like just the market makers that want to make some money to a pretty significant part of the DeFi ecosystem pretty significant part of c5 ecosystem like we are trading on all the major centralized exchanges we are trading on uh, all the major DeFi protocols we support dydx back in 2019 and we were like one of the first major market makers to do that and in general our philosophy is we want to support decentralization as much as possible and it's not just about i don't know blockchain in principle it's basically about not going behind one layer one for example like we are not don't know, Ethereum Maxis or Solana Maxis. It also means that we are not backing any particular protocol. Like, we are not, I don't know, like, we, we are good friends with DYDX, but we will also be good friends with uh, Mongo, for example, on Solana, like, uh, or whatever other, our third protocol, for example. Like, our, our values in general is basically making sure that there are enough, like, there are enough similar protocols out there, and it's basically what drives... Well our values, but also what drives our basically that's what differentiates us as well from from others because we we spend so much time on integrations, so much time on like connecting to different liquidity pools that we differentiate ourselves from other market makers in that way. so it makes sense for us to actually support basically like, yeah, let, let thousand flowers bloom, basically kind of strategy. And the same goes for our venture business, which we started uh, last year as as well. So we did over 60 investments so far since beginning of last year. And it's the same, and same, same, similar kind of, uh, similar kind of, uh, yeah, philosophy that we, like you would often see venture funds, either not investing in competitors or just spraying and praying, like we are doing something else. That's what we're saying, that basically we are making sure that we invest across the whole space, like in the teams that do make sense from like from a team perspective, from technology perspective. But we don't, again, we don't back any one L1 or any one protocol, any one like derivatives protocol, lending protocol. We actually want to support as many as possible.
0: Can you also describe for the audience just what market making is like in its most basic form?
1: I would say in the most basic form, it's it's providing bits and offers. If you imagine an order book, the bits and offers you will see in this order book are ma- most likely provided by market makers. And the, yeah, like that's that's, that's basically the, the core of the business. Basically, market makers providing bits and offers and effectively making money from the spread on the exchange minus the cost. So our business is doing thousands. Of oh, millions actually transactions on a daily basis and capturing the spreads and basically managing the resulting risk.
0: Another question I have is just, what do you feel like are the most major differences on being a market maker for a centralized exchange versus an AMM? And what kind of challenges and hurdles do you have on both sides of that?
1: I'm still getting warm to the idea of AMMs in general, like when they appeared back in Yeah, back back in DeFi summer. Well, I mean, they they appeared slightly before that, but in general, like when, when Uniswap started blooming back in 2020, like I was, I have to admit, like I was super skeptical. And the success took me very much by surprise because, okay, market making business is very difficult. Like there are, I don't know, so many different parameters you need to manage because you cannot, and Uniswap, like there's at least the initial version was making it like rather simple. Okay, like you have this very simple formula. You provide liquidity, and you basically, yeah, you basically market make around the theoretical that is, de- that's basically defined for you by the market forces. I think like this Uniswap v3 it does changes a bit, so it, did, so it it's basically becomes a bit more complex. We are not like we are not super big fans of market making and in, in MMs at this stage. Like with normal Uniswap simply because that it's, it's very much capital inefficient. With Uniswap v3 is primarily around gas costs. So like it's, it's just un- not feasible for us to do it properly on uh, mainnet, for example. Like it, it, it does change on uh, L2s. So we are currently experimenting with that. But in general, yes, I think. We'll, we'll see. That, that, that's, that's, I think the bottom line. Let's, the, the main challenge is, I think there are not enough parameters still to play around with. So, like, okay, Uniswap 3 you have, we have three different fee schedules you can, uh, you can adopt, for example, but that's pretty much it. I think it, at some point it will get more and more complex, but then I would also question, okay, if it gets more complex, then like, why not just run a normal order book? But it's that has been my opinion for for the past two years, and all while like those AMMs have been quite successful businesses in terms of like how much, how many, like well, how much liquidity is there, like how much, uh, how many fees are they collect, how much fees they collect as well. So, yeah, I guess time will tell. Like maybe maybe they will become advanced enough to uh, for us to participate properly, and I'll be proven wrong.
0: Yeah, I think that is that's a good point. Is that when you do look at it, you know the. The bid ask model is probably the most efficient form of market making and trading and AMMs are just objectively inefficient, but it's, it's really just because of the limitations of the code, right? And the, and the limitations of, I guess, just the economics of the blockchain is that, would you agree with that statement?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Like it's economics of blockchain makes a big difference. like. Especially on AMMs like SushiSwap, you have extra benefit of receiving well extra rewards. So, like we actually we do provide liquidity in in some protocols that are just up and starting. Like for, exa- for example, I don't know one of the more recent examples in A- is Angle. For example, we were provided, like we seeded liquidity in AMMs for the for launch of the token. So we do that for like it it does make sense to seed liquidity for for the initial launch. It doesn't really make sense to for us to provide liquidity like afterwards with the current model.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. So I guess on that note, what does your typical client look like? Like when you have a protocol or an organization that is looking for perceived for liquidity, how, how does that benefit them? And you know, what's just like the typical makeup of of that type of client?
1: Yeah, I think typical project is primarily looking at getting listed on centralized exchanges. That's that's usually number one priority for most of them. I would say with this with, with growth of DeFi the last couple of years, I don't think it should necessarily be like a super big priority for most of the projects. I think it's much more important to focused on, yeah, focus on product itself and focus on technology. Because, like, once it's successful, once you have enough TVL, for example, in your, in your protocol, centralized exchanges will just list you automatically. But in general, on, in, in terms of what we offer is, yeah, it, it does become a bit easier to get listed on centralized exchanges. We also provide liquidity. Well, we also see liquidity in MMs, for example, to, for starters. We are one of the largest, well, if not the largest market maker on uh, RFQ aggregators like One Inch or Macho or Paraswap. So, like, we do provide a lot of liquidity there as well. And we generally try to be even more helpful, like, well, basically, like with uh, Index Swap, we, we also try to support uh, as many index products as possible on the liquidity side of things. So this is like more of example of us trying to, yeah, deliver much more values than uh, like normal market maker would. In that regard, we are trying to be helpful on OTC front, where we either manage projects treasury, so basically provide liquidity for, well, basically for selling the tokens or selling tokens of uh, employees, for example. So yeah, basically, the idea for us is, yeah, to be engaged with the protocol as much as possible. Like, it's not really interesting for us just to get a loan and, I don't know, get get at listed on centralized exchange. It's just not enough for us uh, in terms of uh, value that accrues to us and to the project.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And you said that, you know, a lot of protocols or DAOs will, will look to you to, I guess, get assistance in being listed on a centralized exchange. Is that because of the network that WinterMute has, or is it also that sexes are looking for certain liquidity requirements or market making requirements before it's listed on centralized
1: exchange? Yeah, sexes typically need at least one, sometimes two market makers to just list protocol. Like some of them have their own market makers. It's not necessarily the practice that we like, but. Yeah, that's the reality we live in but like any investor in exchange they typically don't have uh in-house market makers, so they would rely on like one or usually two market makers to support the listing on the listing date because yeah if if the project lists and there are no like bits and offers well maybe, maybe, well, maybe there are bits but if there are no offers it's not going to be a very successful launch so they often come to us and introduce projects to us that is good that are going to list and basically it's also it's much easier I think for projects that they already in advance talks with exchange to mention okay like you know we have we have a market maker behind us.
0: Okay yeah that's helpful and I feel like Wintermute was just from an institutional standpoint when it comes to DeFi was just very early compared to other firms. That are similar to yours. What did you and Wintermute see in DeFi so early that perhaps others did not?
1: I think it was well, quite honestly, I think it was more of well, part a gamble <laughs> and part just part of like driven by values again, because like to me already by 2019 I was already a lot down the rabbit rabbit hole in terms of Understanding like how blockchain works and like how it can change the world potentially, it was just really interesting for me to yeah dive into it and actually like kickstart liquidity and protocols that really needed it so I think it was it was quite honestly like on one hand value driven on the other hands yeah also the I think the calculation also was that if you can jump in earlier, we would have a pretty good mode compared to anyone who would come in later which which proved true like last year and the uh, year before as well.
0: I'm also thinking just with the recent price action that we've been seeing, and there's, you know, there's talks of a bear market. Does the role or importance of a market maker change in a bear market versus a bull market? Are there, I would assume that there are probably higher demands for winter mute services in a bear market, maybe opposed to a bull market. I'm just wondering, you know, is there any differences there? If you could just add some color to that.
1: Yeah, in general, I think the demand is much higher. Well, demand might be relatively the same, but supply is lower. I would say. I would say it's also a big consideration because a lot of market makers that were profitable in a bull market with really high amount of volatility everywhere might not necessarily be profitable in a bear market where the volumes are low, there is no retail anywhere, and you just need to survive and just focus on like the most liquid pairs probably. And so, yeah, being... Big enough and being able to support liquidity in the pairs that are not necessarily going to be profitable for the next few months, yes, that's something only like a handful of uh, big market makers can afford to, to do.
0: Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And let's talk about the index co-op and Wintermute. Uh, can you just describe for everybody the relationship between Wintermute and Index Coop, if there is one already, and? Then you already kind of touched on, you know, what kind of challenges are there in providing liquidity for Index Coop, both the products that we have, the, you know, our index funds, as well as our native index token?
1: Yeah, sure. I think I'll start from afar, actually. So basically, back back to my ThreatFi experience. So what I was doing at Optiver was market making ETFs. So in general, like this theme of indexes, theme of market making, them is very close to my heart. I would say back and back at Optiver, like market making ETFs is a very difficult business. It's like there are a lot of small things you need to take into account, like starting with car actions for different stocks, finishing with managing your inventory, managing any like risks from like running exposures and in individual stocks, for example, and a lot of this complexity is shared with DeFi index products and basically early last year i started to look into the space because i said okay like yeah, market making etfs is something i pretty much made my career on back back in the days." And yeah what are the products being out there so i heard about dpi i heard about like a few others so i started researching into uh, researching the space and basically i've seen a, basically i found roughly four biggest projects index group being among them, obviously, like the largest one. And I basically, appeared yeah, with, with the same like focus on decentraliza- decentralization, with the same focus on that we don't want really to back one protocol, but we actually want to back the whole space. We started approaching all of those protocols. So we started with, uh, I think we started with PowerPool initially, then we approached Index, we approached PyDAO, and finally we approached you guys as well. And the deal we made, basically all four protocols was pretty much the same, where we would market make the governance token index in, uh, in your case. But on top of that, like the main value add from our side would be to market make the index products as they get listed on centralized exchanges. So now the biggest, biggest challenge last year was. Like on one hand, there was not enough traction in most of those index products, like including in it, like, okay, DPI got listed on KuCoin, but that was pretty much the only centralized listing that we've seen. And on the other hand, like, I think in DeFi community in general, there was still a prevalence of, like prevalence of opinions that you can make much more money by aping and like one or two tokens that you really believe in. And since everything was going up, like people kind of got reinforced like this view got reinforced and people had that yeah you don't really need to diversify i think after this bear market this view might change but yeah we'll we'll see hopefully it will be but like the the result would the result and i think the another thing was that yeah most of the centralized exchanges on top of it they still don't have a good idea about um, like basically basically whether those index products are securities or not so we had like Quite, quite some discussions with uh, like the, all the key centralized exchanges and most of them were just saying like, yeah, it's, it sounds really interesting to list those products, but we just don't know like if they are securities and, I don't know, SEC will come after us, for example. And so that that bit was not super successful and basically, instead of continuing to push centralized exchanges to list those products, with, which like did not really get much traction, we decided to focus on making those products more successful on DeFi side of things. So for example, last year we supported launch of data uh, on index group site, And in general, I think what we're gonna focus on is basically support liquidity of index products on DeFi with an idea that if it grows a TVL large enough, if it grows a trading volume large enough, it might get interesting enough for the centralized exchange to reconsider the listing the listing bit.
0: Yeah, and there seems to be a big difference, at least from a perceived regulatory standpoint, of you know, the, the retail oriented, centralized exchanges like Coinbase, but there's also the institutional side of this as well, where, you know, you have Coinbase Institutional, which does allow for which DPI is listed there and also BitGo as well. Can you kind of just talk through the differences of why the institutional custody side is more willing to adopt those products versus the retail side?
1: I think on the custody side, it's relatively easy, like, because it's all the RC-20, it's like listing the tokens on custody side doesn't necessarily expose them to any regulatory risks because if they, basically, if they sell those products to institutions, I think it's a much smaller regulatory risk because then institutions are, I don't know, they're certified investors, they can buy pretty much whatever they want. While for retail, like, if you sell securities to retail, yeah, your license, yeah, you need to have a proper license for this in most countries. So that's, that's basically the main reason, I think.
0: So what, what advice would you give the contributors at the index co-op? You know, what, what do you feel like, what steps do we need to take to move forward to potentially get to a centralized exchange listing?
1: I would say focusing on... Uh, institutional adoption would be like one good pass. Like we we are very much we would be super interested in general and partnering on that side because OTC business is very important direction for us in general. And it's also much easier for us like on the just on the infrastructure side. Like it's much easier for us to like if, if a client comes and wants to buy you know ten million dollars worth of DPI or data, it's much easier for us to do it because it's usually a delayed like it's a delayed settlement because they don't need it Right away, unlike if he traded on aggregator, for example. So we have, I don't know, few hours to get all the components, move them from uh, centralized exchanges to DeFi Mint, DPI, and deliver to the client. And it also basically, like, yeah, most of those institutional clients, they will do rather big tickets, which means that TBL will grow, and if TBL grows, it will make those products much more visible. And once they're visible, again, they will catch attention of uh, centralized exchanges because. All those centralized exchanges, they want to attract the same institutional flow that's buying those products OTC. So they will inevitably then list them because they, yeah, they want to attract this flow and they want, they want those institutionals to actually trade on the exchange instead of like doing it via OTC desk or Wintermute, for example.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's helpful too. So Wintermute has obviously been very successful in this space, this very niche space. What do you attribute to Wintermute's success? And, you know, how have you been able to differentiate yourself from organizations that do things similar
1: in this space? I think the key thing for us was we're just trying to be helpful as much as possible. So I think we're just, like, very very friendly in general to a lot of protocols we engage with, to a lot of projects that we engage with, because we, we have a very much long-term view on most of those protocols and about the space in general. And that really differentiates us against, like, much more mercenary type market makers, like a lot of them out there who just focus on shorter term gains, for example. Like for us, it's much more important to build our brands, to build our name and just to make sure that everyone knows us, not because we are, I don't know, the biggest market maker in DeFi, but also because people see us as a well, basically part of the ecosystem, not just not just a market maker who wants to make a lot of money there.
0: Yeah, and we're also interested to know your thoughts on you know, there are these automated Uniswap V3 liquidity managers like uh, Visor Fa- Finance, which is now Gamma Strategies, and G-Uni. W- what are your thoughts on those? What are some risks and limitations that should be taken into consideration when trying, you know, if an organization is trying to decide, you know, should we try to use this automated V3 liquidity manager or someone like Wintermute?
1: I think they can they can be used in conjunction because like we, we are not necessarily super thrilled about providing liquidity on even on Univ3. so i think providing liquidity via those those kind of parties it's still better than trying to manage liquidity on your own like i'm not super much for i'm not super familiar with with how they operate but like the way i can imagine they operate is yeah they have some kind of internal oracle or pricing that basically keeps moving those bands as the market moves Which is still much more efficient than just, yeah, have, have your liquidity being like a, yeah, sit and duck basically, because yeah, part of our business and yeah, we're not, we're not making a, (laughs) we're we're not hiding it. Like part of our business providing liquidity, but another important part of the business is taking liquidity as well. And we take a lot of liquidity from Uniswap or Uniswap both V2 and V3. Because like I don't know, if there is a big buyer on Binance, for example, in one of the DeFi tokens, yeah, and there is a lot of liquidity on Uniswap, we'll we'll take it. And so if if you have if you have a partner that can basically move liquidity out of harm's way, yeah, that's that's much more efficient than just not manage it at all uh, by yourself. I think I think going forward once we once we get more comfortable with UniV3, we can also provide this kind of service in terms of liquidity provision so we'll start competing with those guys but yeah i think it's still better than us and to use them for sure
0: yeah, i mean one of the benefits obviously of uni v3 and you're right it's it's just they've they've got price oracles that move the bands yeah that, that's exactly what they do but one of the risks of uni v3 is like there is just like this a much greater risk of impermanent loss when you've got more those concentrated liquidity pools versus uni v2 so if you were to get involved more involved in that part of the business would you focus more on v3 r- regardless of the higher risk of permanent loss or would you focus more like on a v2 strategy do you think with you know less permanent loss but also less Bees associated that you know driven to the to the bottom line. I just kind of want to get your thoughts on both of those, and and where do you think y'all would fit in?
1: Yeah, I would say like there are some more interesting like MM constructs out there. Like for example, there is a cow swap. Like yeah, despite the fun name, like the idea is actually really interesting because you have, well, you have basically liquidity being provided uh, in a passive way, but also on top of that, you have solvers who can basically provide liquidity on demand. And I think that's that's actually a much more interesting model to explore because it kind of takes the best of both worlds because it takes like, it has like this passive uh, aspect of it, but it also has a more active aspect of like more active market makers stepping in when, when liquidity is really needed. So I think You'll just see a lot of more, a lot more innovation in space. And yes, univ is much more concentrated. So it's much more risky, but it also means that, yeah, the liquidity, like it's also more liquid for the end user because, yeah, if you think about not arbitrageurs, but actually people who want to buy index products, for example, yeah, for sure in the Univ3 would be much more interesting for them. And. If you're looking at, for example, DPI e yeah, it's not so much of a risk to market make it, even if it's university, because those two products are so much correlated, for example.
0: Yeah, and I think IDEX has, you know, IDEX has that hybrid liquidity model. Are
1: you familiar with that at all? Not with IDEX, no. Yeah, there's just so much happening in the space. It's not always possible to keep track of everything.
0: Yeah, I I understand. Well, you know, what are some like, I guess, stereo, stereotypical or just strange assumptions that someone would make about a crypto native uh, market maker that are, are just completely false or just like just completely out of left field that you've experienced in your time?
1: Oh, well, I think the main thing like, I got spammed with messages quite often is that we manipulate the markets. <laughs> That's like the most common one. So it's basically like people see that we are selling in Venuswap, for example. And they think that we are dumping and trying to bring the price down, but all it means that we are, you know, buying Coinbase or Binance and selling on DeFi. So that's that's all you can read into it. But yeah, in general, this this assumption that market makers are like a lot of market makers are making money by manipulating things, Uh that's something we still need to fight. Like this this perception, like I I still see it, and like because we we do participate in uh, governance on uh, quite a few protocol so there's still a like a misconception that we need to fight a lot i think another quite common one is and that's that's a bit more interesting to explore is basically that we are basically facilitating like bad otc flow well one one was just literally from a few days ago with uh, with uh, sifu funds for example like that basically what happens is we trade on matcha or one inch or Against somebody who, like for example, against a hacker who stole some money from some poor guy on Binance, for example, and then this poor guy texts text me on, well, DMs me on Twitter and says, like, yeah, return me my money because the hacker like did it via Intermeet, and then I need to explain, okay, it actually went through Matcha, it, like there's nothing we can do about it because, like, yeah, we cannot identify every single like bad, bad actor who just stole money from Binance because it's literally impossible. And, like, with C for example, it it was also, like, not possible because even, like, the, like, chain analytics software that we use for our OTC activities, it would not mark his wallets as uh, suspicious, for example. So, again, there is really nothing we can do about it. So but that's kind of interesting challenge we face on, like, RFQ uh, side of things, like on the aggregator side of things in DeFi that, yeah, often we deal, like, we basically trade with counterparties who are, like can be considered malicious or actually malicious, and it's quite impossible for us to like filter those out because it's it's kind of the same. Like if you provide liquidity on Uniswap, and the hacker trades through Uniswap, yeah, then you trade it against the hacker, and you had like yeah, you have, you have no way to avoid that. And I think the way we want to like I think one one important way to understand why it's not like I wouldn't say not a big deal, but like smaller ch- smaller problems than it actually is is like if somebody like let's say somebody converts east to usdc via us on matcha they still need to convert this usdc to dollars somewhere so it's not like they manage to they, it's not like we help them to move money away it's actually much more complex than that because they still need to uh, access those fiat rails uh, somewhere else to uh, to cash out and that's that's why they will get into trouble properly because, like, if they, for example, start onboarding with us as a, on OTC fronts, we will do proper KYC ML with them and we'll basically tell, okay, like, we're not going to trade with you because you're probably a bad guy. But yeah, those those two are the most common.
0: Yeah, interesting. I didn't realize y'all got mixed up in that seafood debacle a little bit. Um, did y'all receive a lot of pushback or flack from that?
1: Yeah, somebody wrote a thread on Twitter, had to respond to it, and I think it ended up like, i was i was able to explain like how we operate quite nicely yeah it's it's just something that pops up every now and then like i I think it's it's kind of a curse of being a big firm in general that you just get a lot of a lot more thought about your activities and what you do and like a lot of people are just trying to make conspiracy theory about what we are doing all the time i think and like the bigger we are the more people will try to i don't know connect the dots that are not actually there
0: yeah and You know, I guess we can stay on the same topic of, I guess, exploits or hacks. And do you have any opinions or hot takes on, you know, the most recent 320 million, however much it was, wormhole exploit? And does Wintermute provide any liquidity or seed any liquidity on any multi-chain bridges?
1: Yeah, bridges is a really interesting theme in general. We were not really affected by the wormhole hack. Like, the the way it works in Solana, like, there are, like, two Ethereums there. So there is one that's provided by, by FTX pretty much, and there is one that's provided by Wormhole. Like, we didn't really touch the Wormhole one because it doesn't trade that much. So I think people primarily use it to move value across chains and basically to, like, deposit it in lending protocols. Yeah, like, my perspective is bridging is tough and i think that's that's the take uh, you can you can uh, read on twitter a lot these days like yeah bridging is properly tough if you, especially if you want to make it in a decentralized way so i think like the more successful bridges like the more the bridges that you don't expect to fail are pretty much either centralized exchanges like ftx or binance or basically yeah the the protocols that are behind the stable coins like tether or circle those are the bridges you don't really expect to fail, and also the bridges are much less likely to do something malicious or bad because, like, they have a pretty big business behind it. But yeah, decentralized bridges like we've, we've engaged with quite a few protocols. Like we, like we, were, we were integrated with Solchain for a while when they were like trying their thing. We actually invested in the Credo, so those guys are doing something different in that regard. But yeah, we just know it's very difficult, and uh, well. I think everyone wrote uh, Vitalik's comments uh, from like a month ago recently as well. So I pretty much agree with them. And I think like with bridging, the main, like the, the only benefit from bridging really is moving moving value. Like nobody really needs to trade Ethereum and Solana because like if you want to trade Ethereum and Solana, you might as well just trade Ethereum Perps and Solana. Like, so it's all about moving value. So I think in the long run, it will be, yeah, whether somebody can figure out this, like a proper decentralized way of storing value, well, like, like Wormhole does, or people will just resort to centralized places like centralized exchanges or circles or tethers of this world to, uh, to do the bridging for them. I think that that's what it will end up with.
0: Wait, so were you saying that you feel like Wormhole is, is a decentralized bridge?
1: Yeah, wormhole is a, like, I think that it's, it is properly decentralized bridge. Like it is still has a connection to a very much centralized entity jump, but like the, the nature of it is very much decentralized because you, like, there is no like ML when you move assets across. Like you, you can do it in a totally anonymous way, which is basically what decentralization is about for me as well. So yeah, wormhole is properly decentralized. Yeah. In this case, yeah, they had a bug. It got exploited. Which is very unfortunate. Quite sad, really. Yeah, I think that's that's an unfortunate reality of yeah building this uh, well building this new system because yeah it's just it's just really hard.
0: Yeah, and it I think it feels like too that you know one of the major themes for 2022 in crypto is layer two and I guess side chains as well. And with that, uh, you know, you've got to use multi chain bridges. And so if it's the if it's the year of layer 2 2022 it's probably going to be the year of cross-chain bridge hacks as well uh, and just my thoughts on that but what are in your opinion like what are some other important themes that investors should be paying attention to in the crypto space in 2022
1: Yeah I think in, in general, whether it's yeah, whether it's bridges, whether it's like, I don't know, all the software around like DAOs or about around gaming, for example, about around NFTs, that's that's probably the most exciting stuff that's that's gonna be there. Like there are a lot of exciting companies general operating that around that. So like as a venture invest investing firm, like we are actually much more excited about those like Companies that operate on the sidelines that are actually powering the whole thing, rather than I don't know, focus on uh, certain uh, trading protocol or, for example, I don't know new NFT project, a new game, for example. So I think this this uh, like stuff that powers everything that's the most most interesting uh, on the investment side for us.
0: When you say assets that are powering everything, are you talking like a ro- along the chain link, the graph? Ocean Protocol, Numerai, or are you talking more about like Rin Protocol, Thorchain, things like that?
1: I think more the latter, yeah. So more more like the latter because yeah, oracles is still. I think it will be not necessarily a crowded space, but yeah, you already have uh, Link, obviously, but you have I don't know, you have quite quite a few new ones up and coming. Like you have a piece on Solana, you have. I think it's going to be quite an interesting. The battle between those, but at, like for for us, for us, it's much more about like as a letter, like lo- looking at like companies that are actually doing something that's well, something that can be composable with with other protocols basically.
0: And you also touched on NFTs as well, and you know uh, NFTs are just inherently li- illiquid assets. Do y'all have any metaverse or NFT related plays? that, you know, or, or any, do y'all provide any liquidity for NFTs, or like maybe like through like an NFTX vault or a, or a Nifty Museum vault, or where do y'all's thoughts there? And do y'all have any plans for that?
1: We are looking at NFTX, for example, like we, we haven't done anything with it, just quite openly and uh, honestly, but I think NFTX is a really interesting model to basically bring liquidity and basically, yeah, make NFTs more fungible. Like we, we quite like that. I think our extent to which we will be involved in the ft exist ecosystem will be much larger in general. Like we are looking at how yeah how to price different uh, like the the biggest uh, collections for example like how to price rare trades. So it's much more akin to yeah quant trading to a degree because you, you need to build rather sophisticated models to to be able to price those but it's not really about market making more more often but it's much more about market market taking really because yeah you need to be able to yeah see the opportunity and snap it before anyone else (laughs) That's, that's how it works
0: okay yeah that's interesting thanks and so on your twitter profile you describe yourself as a libertarian in doubt
1: what does that mean i think it means that yeah, in the most basic sense that nothing is black and white, nothing is black and white. Like, it would be awesome if we have like a perfect, I don't know, libertarian system where everything is free and everything. But ultimately, just the world is way too complex to to say like, I don't know, we should have perfect, I don't know, libertarian state or we should have a probe, like, perfect communist state. It's just its just like either, either of those extremes is just not going to work because, I don't know, because of human nature, because, like, any system would simplify things way too much. But also, I don't know, like, talking about hacks, for example, I was firmly in uh, code Coder's Law team, <laughs> I would say, like, I would say a year ago, but looking at all the hacks often, like, very closely, because some of those were protocols we were, like, really close with, either as an investor or just uh, teaming up with them. Like, it's really clear that sometimes, yeah, you get hacked, it's, and it's not really arbitrage. It's just like proper person stealing money from other people. And from libertarian, libertarian perspective, yeah, like code is law. Yeah, too bad. Like, yeah, it should just, yeah, everything goes. But from like once, once you understand that, okay, it's literally like normal people that lose money in it. That's basically, I don't know, developer communities that getting destroyed and, uh, like having to find like what to do next. It's not that simple, basically, and I think yeah, this 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 whole seems that yeah, it's much the world is more complicated than than the extreme views that we can take. That's 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 why I'm libertarian in doubt now because yeah, it's just much more complex.
0: Yeah, that makes sense because I think it is a gray area, some parts because you know the code does allow for that type of exploit to exist, right? So in that sense, it's it's like. You know, that's those are the parameters for the environment, for the game that you're playing, the parameters for the game that you're getting into when you're interacting with that protocol. And then at the same time, you know, it is theft of other, you know, you're taking something that doesn't belong to you and it goes outside the scope and the spirit of the code that was written. Right. So, yeah, that makes sense to me. Where do you feel like these libertarian views came from?
1: I think it's primarily just a function of environment for me personally, because, like, I grew up in early 90s in Russia. Like, my father was, like, a really early, one of the early entrepreneurs, uh, like, after the collapse of Soviet Union. And, like, he was initially quite successful, like, later on not so. But basically, I grew up with those ideas of, yeah, communism doesn't work. And suddenly, you have, like, all this freedom and people can just make, like, that they can make like basically your you have your own your own fate right so you if you put enough effort into things you can accomplish pretty much everything and then i like afterwards i started studying in uh, basically university called high school of economics which was also super libertarian i don't know i started reading iron Rands and uh, i know it's it all kind of cascaded to me being pretty much hardcore libertarian like i would say three four years ago already so yeah, I think, like, my whole life kind of shaped me in this way.
0: <laughs> Anne Rand is a pretty thick book. That That's probably one of the largest books I've read, I would say.
1: Yeah, and really horribly written as well from, like, literature <laughs> literature point of view. I actually like uh, Fountainhead uh, much more as a, well, as a piece of literature, I would say.
0: Oh, yeah, I haven't read that one yet. Okay, so we've got about six minutes left. I don't know, what kind of, what projects out there... Are catching your eye like what what teams are building in this little bear market right now that you feel like people should be paying attention to
1: yeah i think i'll, I'll revert to like my initial statement that we are not really like they're we, doing a lot of investment in the space That like but we are not really looking to back like one protocol or one team so i really don't want to name names like partially because i really don't like to talk i don't know talk up our bags Uh, partially because like I really think like there's this value of decentralization value of like what's interesting out there is is just much bigger than any single team we we work with like I could sing praises about like DYDX for example but like there are a lot of really interesting teams other teams out there that like I, I could equally yeah talk a lot of nice things about so I think I think for me it's much more thematic and I would say I could think I I could say about like things that would excite me in general to do. Like for example, I'm I was not super excited about gaming stuff last year, for example, because like I well as a gamer, I actually tested quite a few of them. I think the ones that I liked the most was like Dark Forest, but it's just like so hard to play it properly without I know doing some coding on top to automate things. So it wasn't yeah and. It was still a time thing, so I couldn't really dedicate myself that much to it. But like, I, I tried Toxie and I didn't, didn't really like it. And I like, I tried other games and they're just like, I don't know, not proper games. Like you can, like you go to your iPhone and you download a random game and it'll be better than anything we have on blockchain now. So what would excite me would would, I, would be actually like a proper gaming studio, maybe indie studio coming with already ready products and making a game out of it on blockchain and basically I don't know, for example, market making the in-game assets or so market making NFTs. So basically, like, well, basically finding some proper proper game and actually support it on the liquidity front. That that would be super awesome, I think, for us and for me, like as a gamer as well.
0: Yeah, I th- I think it's been so interesting to see, you know, all the pushback about you know from gamers about having NFTs implemented or integrated into the games that they play. But yeah, I'm thinking like, you know, all these games that are on the blockchain, right? Like Decentraland, Axie Infinity, I don't know, once they reach the point where they can implement the mobile aspect, actually, I think Axie is on mobile now that I think about it. And I know I can think of two projects right now. Decentral Games, we had Ryan on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he said that they're working on a mobile app. And I think that's going to be huge for them. And then Zone, X-O-N-E, is another one that is i think about to release their mobile app for their you know they've got land cells and it's a metaverse play as well and i think you know it's just so much less restrictive when you have a mobile app for your nft related blockchain game and i think that is going to be a huge unlock for the space once that happens
1: oh yeah yeah totally agree
0: yeah well, looks like we're up on time here. Evgeny, I really appreciate you coming on the show. And I'll just give you the final word and just let you tell everyone where can they go to find out more about you and Wintermute.
1: About Wintermute, the easiest way to go is our website. It's literally wintermute.com. So it's very easy to find. Yeah, in general, like I should post a lot on Twitter. Well, maybe maybe I could do even more now. But yeah, that's that's definitely some some a proper place to get familiar with, I don't know, my views and what I think about the space. But in general, yeah, more for scope, we're just like really excited to support you guys, to continue supporting you guys. And I think it's been a tough year last year in terms of, yeah, just not enough growth, I guess, in of those index products, but we are very much determined to continue supporting you guys. We're very, very much determined to make the space successful and to continue educate. Well general population why i don't know like why why it makes sense to diversify why it makes sense to index your investments so like from that perspective yeah yeah really like i'm we're really determined to make to make this year successful for both of our companies
0: yeah and we appreciate the relationship too and yeah i mean i think I agree with what you said there. People are starting to wake up to the power of these, you know, crypto native index funds. And, you know, we've we've got listings on BitGo and Coinbase Institutional now. And I think the partnership that Wintermute and Index Co-op have together and just the team that we have in place at Index and how we just, you know, we never stop building. We never stop growing. And it's it's very bullish for me personally, but also I'm a contributor, so I'm supposed to be bullish. So but anyway, uh, thanks to everyone who's listening live in the discord. This is being recorded. And so we will get this mixed and edited and we will get this out sometime next week. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks again, Evgeny, for being on the show. All right. See you all next time. Bye.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. Bye bye.